Hello, Freedom Fighters, and welcome to the First in Freedom podcast, where we discuss current threats to our freedom, how the impact is here at home, and what we can do to stop it. In this episode, you'll be challenged and inspired by one North Carolina doctor's journey through the pandemic. I'm your host, Jason Phibbs, and we're taking freedom back. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. So here in Stanley County, we have um, something called the Stanley County Freedom Network. It's a Facebook group uh, that we started last year, and it's been a great way to help uh, get people together, organize, share information, etc., um, to kind of keep the fight going against all of the uh, attacks on our freedom. And so anyway, we've been uh, meeting since uh, October in person, um, and uh, we've been doing a meeting roughly once a month. Well, anyway, uh, for this February meeting, um, we were very privileged and honored to have a local doctor, a Dr. Amira Kustani, who's uh, one of our uh, primary care physicians here in our county, um, who has been um, just great in the battle um, against COVID and has continued practicing medicine unlike most doctors out there. And so um, I had reached out to him. He and I have known each other for years. And uh, so I reached out and asked him if he wouldn't mind coming and just sharing his journey from a doctor's perspective of uh, what it's like uh, going through COVID, sort of how treatment evolved and, um, you know, just his experiences. So um, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, We were able to record it from uh, the meeting last night. Um, and so I wanted to put it out on the podcast so people can share it because stories like his are important and I want the people in North Carolina to hear them. I know you, you've heard probably some of the stories from the national level, um, but this stuff is going on right here at home. And uh, let me just introduce him uh, real quickly. Dr. Amir Kostani is the medical director of Medicatrics of Albemarle and board certified in family medicine as well as osteopathic manipulative therapy. He completed his undergraduate studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and received his doctorate degree in osteopathic medicine from Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, California. He completed his family medicine residency at Wilson Memorial Regional Medical Center in Binghamton, New York, where he served as both chief resident and president of the house staff. Although he is part of the first ever group of physicians to be certified as functional medicine practitioners in November of 2013, He has been practicing medicine, utilizing a holistic systems-based approach for well over a decade. So without further ado, um, take a listen to uh, uh, last night's talk by Dr. Kostani. So um, basically what we're dealing with with uh, COVID infection was uh, at the onset with uh, anything that is like this disease, which is an infectious disease that spreads. The question that rises is, uh, have you dealt with this thing before? Uh, do we know what it does, how it spreads, what it causes when people get it? And then what we do, the method by which we will handle and uh, deal with the disease, both in a treatment form, but also in, in preventing the spread. Uh, we don't have, we, at least in my career as a medical doctor, I've never seen anything like this because we never had something that for which we had to uh, come up with new systems of uh, prevention control, etc., etc. Etc. That uh, that we have had to do with this disease. So um, for many of us, for many physicians, it was learning on the job uh, as we were facing this, which is common in our field because we do do that in various fields of medicine. 
people don't always come in with the same diseases. Even people that have the same diseases always don't have the same presentations. So physicians are pretty well versed with the idea that you could have rheumatoid arthritis, have three different patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but they get to know the rheumatoid arthritis from three different rats. So to treat them the same way is insanity. You have to recognize how people get to a place and then hopefully design a way to deal with each person based on uh, their unique characteristics that makes them a human being who has a disease, not a disease that is carried by a person. Right? So that's, that, that's at least the way I learned medicine. Uh, with that said, when this thing came out, uh, there was a lot of questions at the beginning. So the most disturbing fact for those of us who had been practicing medicine for a while was people were coming up with uh, uh, sweeping recommendations where we really didn't know enough about the disease. And when you don't know enough about a disease, at least the way science normally works, is you stop and you ask questions. Part of the problem with COVID was that from the beginning, there was a lot of pressure from media, from people, and they wanted answers. And the most honest answer probably from the scientists would have been, I don't know. Well, that's just too honest an answer sometimes in science. Uh, so I use that a lot in my practice, those of you who know me. Uh, and I tell patients when they come for the first time to see us, if, if, if hearing the words I don't know aggravates you, this is not the right medical practice for you. Because there's a lot of things we don't know. In particular, there's a lot of things we don't know about you and the disease that you might have. We may know the disease, but we may not know how you got there. So those are things that we need to discover. With this, the pressure was from outside and the powers that be unfortunately couldn't uh, avoid the temptation and they started coming up with answers. And their answers were up off in the air. You can't come up with the type of answers we were giving to people about masks, about treatments, about you know what's the best route to stop prevention. How bad is the disease? Who is really being affected by it? Who's dying? Who's not dying? Why are some people dying and some others aren't? Uh, none of those answers were really available, but people wanted answers, and it's understandable. You know, um, maybe if God forbid there was another plague like this, people can handle it better. Um, by learning from these experiences that we picked up from this, but watching what's going on in my field, in the field of science, it's doubtful that we have learned anything good from this. So, uh, so the questions weren't being asked. The questions weren't being asked, uh, and the reason is we felt like we have to give answers. And one of the problems with science, let's first say what science is, in my opinion at least. Science is uh, knowing what answers you don't have having the courage and curiosity to search for those answers that you don't have. And then having the intellectual honesty to accept the fact that sometimes you get wrong answers. And then you have to say, you know what, I was wrong. This doesn't work, we go back and we do this. And then you try and you make errors and then you learn and then eventually you start applying uh, good science. And even then, when you think you're really applying good science, Somebody else comes and says, you know what, if you do this better this way, it will probably work better. And for years, scientists worked with that system and that method of asking questions of themselves. And all of a sudden, we got to a place that asking questions became um, like a problem. And that's when, that's when the problems began. Because if the scientists can't ask questions, which is what their job is, then you have hit a wall. And, uh, and COVID started as that. It started with a lot of wrong answers, 
And then people that were giving these wrong answers, remember, they, they were hats such as professor this, doctor that, director of this, president of that. And I don't know how much of an easy time you have. Many of you, how many people here have kids? Okay. I don't know how, what an easy time it is to just admit to your child that you didn't know when you made a mistake. Now imagine going on television in front of a bunch of millions of people and saying, I was wrong. They would know about everything that I said. And we have been wrong almost about everything that was declared at the beginning about this condition. So our experience with this was from the beginning, wait and watch. And the wait and watch is, is kind of a scientific method. Um, you see patients, you deal with them, you try to manage it. Part of the recipe is not wait, watch, and get the disease, but I actually did that too. <laughs> when you get the disease, you get better at it because you actually get a sense of what other people are going through. You know, I had a pretty rough time with it. I, I got the disease in uh, December of 2020 when it was still newer, and um, it was rough. I thought I was going to die. Um, I was on oxygen for three weeks at home. And every time I talked to my doctor, he said, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> I wasn't going to go to the hospital. <laughs> so I stayed home, and you know, I, if I needed a doctor, I would look in the mirror. <laughs> and, and I had the oxygen on, and it, you know, it, it, was, it got pretty tough a couple of nights. And uh, But, you know, we managed, and... God was looking after me more than anything else, and I made it true. Uh, I was wondering during the process why I was going through this, and shortly after I discovered I had to know what people go through. And it, it always makes you a better doctor when you suffer from something your patients have. You can't have all of them, all the diseases you see, thank God. But, uh, but it makes you better. It makes you better in the process because you learn, uh, especially if you're paying attention. And uh, I try to, because to me this is a service. We are serving God in the practice. We, at the end of the day, we're hoping he says, well done. And uh, because of that, it's not just going through a job so that you could see people and make money. It's more uh, uh, being in a mission field in some ways. You know, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. <laughs> I'm a missionary. Get an animal. <laughs> I discovered that during the mission trip to India. <laughs> what am I doing out here in India? I'm already a missionary out there in the US. Anyhow, so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that this process, you know, getting the disease, going to, going to uh, seeing more and more patients, uh, we learned and we picked up little bits and pieces about what works for people. One of the early things that I learned was the more I'm able to keep the patients at home, the less likelihood that they're going to die. Um, I'm not trying to disparage hospitals. They're doing a great job with what they do, with what they know, and what they're able to do. But they're understaffed. The staff, especially early on when I got this, the staff were scared. They didn't want to be around COVID patients. I had to call, um, wow, maybe four times to the hospital to get uh, someone to go see one of my staff members who got sick at the same time as I did, who was hospitalized, um, just to change her bed sheets and get her out of her wet clothes. Four times. And that's not something that normally happens in, in our you know, medical facilities. But the nurses were scared, and they had the right, honestly. But they take, a, they take an oath to serve people, and they should have done their jobs. You know, if I was there, I would. I mean, that's how I got sick. 
So I'm not blaming anyone, but I, we should have done a better job early on in the hospitals. It's just there was a lot of unknowns, there was a lot of scared people, and that created, and fear is always the root of all the problems we have, most of the problems we have. Uh, I think that led to uh, poor management a lot, and then later on policies contributed to additional poor management things, and then what we had at the end was a mess. So we decided early on, if we can keep people at, uh, at, at their own homes, sleep in their own beds like I did, uh, give them oxygen, you know, bring an oxygen to the house, making sure they are uh, staying on the oxygen levels that we liked and we thought it was uh, uh, safe enough to still manage them. Uh, we would get a consensus. You know, we live in a very litigious society. Everybody, uh, you know, if you deliver a baby and the baby's not doing well by the time they're 16, you can still see your doctor and say the doctor did something wrong. That is strange, but it is the reality of our, our, our world. So we had to be very careful that what we were doing also wasn't something that people could come back and say, you killed my daddy because uh, he should have been at the hospital, but you managed him at home. So the position we were in, managing people, was a pretty unusually tough situation because we had to fight those fears. I could have easily said, well, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing and just say, go to the hospital. But it, it was a tough battle. I didn't want people to be in that position. And because I had gone through it, it was an easier thing to decide on. Uh, but I promise you, if you're sitting in judgment about some of the doctors that you might know that have to be in this, you don't know what they're dealing with. Some of these people have worked uh, a long time to get this license they have. And it's not all about greed. Some of it is about the way our society functions. And they're scared. They're scared for their livelihoods, for their families. So be careful with the judgment part. Uh, and I know maybe that's not what everybody thought I would talk about tonight. I'll talk about more things. But I think that part of calling each other names, you know, these people are wearing masks, therefore they are, I don't know, stupid. And I mean, I've seen people driving on their own in a car and they're wearing a mask. <laughs> Why are they wearing a mask for? They're worried that the car might get sick? Right? They're scared. And fear is a horrible thing, right? It's good to understand this, because we will be gentler when we deal with people that are going through these things. And uh, the physician, the staff at the hospitals, again, they're doing what they, they think they can do right now. And I know it's not good enough. I'm not trying to excuse anybody. But many of the times, that's all they can do. There are hospitals, uh, there is examples of people going to the hospital, their primary care physician has tried to get them on a particular medicine for COVID, Lawsuits have occurred, and the primary care has lost. The hospital has won, and the hospital's treatment continues. So it's not really that easy. I, I get phone calls from people who are not even my patients. They go, my cousin's neighbor's nephew twice removed is in the hospital. Can you help them? <laughs> I love to, but that's not how it works, people. You can't just go in the hospital and start writing orders for a person you don't know. You can't even go in the hospital and write orders for the people you do know. Does that make sense? So we have to be careful with the judgment part of uh, some of the things that are going on. Just like it's not, I think there's a lot of heat in the conversation and the discussions about COVID right now. That's another thing we have learned. It would be good to kind of lower that heat a little bit. You know, we're not idiots for not wearing masks, and they're not crazy for wearing it. That's what they know. This is what we know. It's good to have dialogue, conversations like this, for people to ask questions. It would be good if those conversations got... Um, a lot more allowed in social media. And there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in social media, with all due respect. A lot of crazy stuff. And it has been going on since the beginning. But there's also a lot of truth. But that's the devil's way. 
is to confuse the, the truth with a, with, with a little bit of a twist. How many times have you heard that money is the root of all evil? Is it? Yeah, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. All you have to do is change one word, right? So uh, I want to make sure that we emphasize that has been one of my one of, one of the things I learned, is that we really need to be a little bit more relaxed about this. If I'm confused about it, that means there's a lot of other doctors that were confused about it, uh, scared. If patients were scared about it as much as I was when I got it, well, then fear is part of the deal, right? How many people here are, uh, are touched with this and lost family members or friends? Okay, how many people think this thing is a hoax, that there is no such a thing as a coronavirus or a disease? So there is a disease. There is a disease, and the treatment is not available, unfortunately. Not this many people should be dying from this, but they are. Uh, how many patients have I lost since this thing started? None. We have, we have had one patient who passed away who uh, was the father of one of our patients, and he was uh, in liver, liver failure, already actively dying. We accepted him, and a few days after we accepted him, he passed away. That's the only patient, and he was vaccinated. That's the only patient we have. But again, he was not really our patient. Uh, but for, for, the, for, the, for the matter of, as far as the people that we have treated, and the patients that are part of our patients' populations, we have not lost a single patient to COVID. If that can happen, This is not for applause. If, if, if uh, this is not for our glory, this is really for God's glory. The fact that we're being used to be able to help people, and uh, really all the glory goes to Him because without Him, I would not have been able to. But I had to get sick really to get this sensitive to this. So I don't know how many people would love to have that part of their resume. I had to get sick in order to to be better. Right, in what I'm doing. But uh, I really feel we're here at this stage right now because of the experiences, the totality of the experiences of that I've been through. So uh, learning was to recognize that we needed to stop, ask questions, learn from our own patients, and see what works. And that took some trial and error. Uh, the most fortunate thing that happened to me was when I was sick, a patient on my call, and he said, uh, you sound horrible. I said, thank you. <laughs> And I was actually attending to him because he had something going on with him and we were on the phone chatting about his illness. But it wasn't an upper respiratory illness like I had. So as he's listening to me and I'm taking, you know, I'm talking and between every three words I have to cough or take a deep breath, he realizes that I'm sounding pretty bad. So he expressed the feeling that I was doing horrible. He said, have you heard about ivermectin? I said, I've read about it and I've, uh, you know, looked up some of the research, but, uh, but not enough. He goes, you should be on it. I said, well, I don't have any right now. I don't think my doctor will prescribe it. He goes, I'll be there about an hour, 40, 30 minutes. He lives uh, in the UI, UI point area. So he drove all the way to my house, put this stuff behind my door, and I used it. Again, this has got to be a God thing because I probably would not have used it. So I used it on my own, and I saw the change. My daughter was sure that I was going to die that night. <laughs> That you shouldn't have taken the medicine the doctor has not prescribed. I said, it's okay, don't worry. I didn't do it. I'm like, I'm dying anyways. <laughs> I might as well take this thing and see what happens. And uh, yeah, I got better. So uh, point being is, um, when I hear uh, arguments about what medicine should be used and what medicine shouldn't be used, 
the biggest concern I have is um, when I see cancer patients, uh, how many people here have had people who have had cancer? So almost a lot, all of you. How many people at least know someone who's had cancer? Everyone knows someone who's had cancer. When they go to uh, the cancer treatment center, what do they receive? Chemotherapy. Right? Has anybody ever read the side effects of chemotherapy? <laughs> okay. The stuff says it can give you other cancers and it can kill you. Why do we give that stuff to people? I don't, but why do we give this stuff to people? We give it because they're facing death. And a person, hey, the person who's facing death is willing to try anything because the worst case scenario is they will die. So when someone says, why are you using ivermectin on COVID patients? I'm asking, uh, is that a trick question? <laughs> I mean, you're saying this is the most horrendous disease ever, which is not, by the way. The death rates on this disease are so low, it's ridiculous how we have shut down this country and the world over it. Amen. But if it is the disease you say it is, shouldn't I be able to use the kitchen sink? Because yeah. if that saves my patient, then that's a good kitchen sink. <laughs> right? So to me, the, the logic is not there as to why are we using uh, medications that don't have an indication for uh, COVID. Not to mention, we our, our field is notorious for using medications that don't have an indication for a, field, uh, for a particular disease. We do that in medicine all the time, especially in my kind of medicine. In functional medicine, we constantly use uh, meds that are not indicated for diseases. And the reason is we experiment with things, we're finding it, uh, how, what, what's working, what's not working, and additional meds are getting added onto the armamentarium, and, and thank God for that, because it works. We use antibiotics that are used for traveler's diarrhea and people that have irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease in my field. Uh, everybody knows the malaria medicine, right? Hydroxychloroquine is used in um, um, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Yeah. Functional medicine doctors are first, the first people that brought that out to use it. And it works. And we use it now for our COVID patients. Because COVID patients don't die from their pneumonias. They die from the autoimmunity that their body creates. That means their body attacks itself in the process of fighting the disease. That's what COVID patients die from. They die from things such as a cytokine, I'm not going to make this uh, too scientific, but they die from things such as cytokine storm, uh, cytokine release syndrome, which happens in the lungs, really is what the name is, which kind of makes your lungs to melt. Their tissue just starts breaking down. That's why if somebody puts you on a, um, on a ventilator, which puts pressure in your lungs, when you're in that state, you actually die quicker. So it should be really the last resort for anyone uh, to go on a ventilator. That's why treating this outpatient early, we learned, is one of the best things you can do. The treatment should be started early on. You know, we've done a lot of other things that we're learning that are not the way they should be. You know, we're testing people that don't have the disease or the symptoms of the disease. My son is a student at a college in uh, North Carolina. He has to go once a week and speak, uh, spit in a cup. He's a perfectly healthy kid, but he hasn't had the vaccine, so he has to go and get tested. You know, we've never tested people for strep unless they had sore throat, fever, and a bunch of other things. Right? So testing, testing in medicine has always been done on people with symptoms. A lady will never get a pregnancy test while they're having their menstrual cycle. It's just not something they do. You know, you are not pregnant and having that at the same time. 
So in, in our field, we do testing based on symptoms and indications. This is the first time ever we're testing people that don't have symptoms. We're masking everyone. If you're sick, wear a mask if you want to. So when you cough and sneeze, if you don't know how to cover it, the mask might help. But masking, you know, five-year-olds in schools? No. You know, and, and here's the serious thing about all this is the science about this has been all out there. It's not like there's a new science that is coming out. Mask is good for surgeons when they're doing surgeries. Because if they cough and sneeze, they're holding their hands, they're cutting things, and they're doing stuff. Well, they won't cough into the wound, so they don't make the patient sick. It's been effective for sick patients wearing it so they don't spread germs, but a bunch of healthy people driving solo in a car wearing a mask? <laughs> you know, how many people know Dr. Malone? Okay, Dr. Malone is the gentleman whose uh, uh, pioneering research kind of led to the creation of the mRNA vaccines that are out there right now. He's pretty outspoken about the fact that these are actually not vaccines. They're not. They're injectable therapeutics, and sorry ones of that, the way they work. Uh, but he's out there and he's banned from YouTube and almost any other social media because he's apparently not scientific enough. The guy who created this, if you go to a restaurant and the chef comes out and says, don't eat the food, you should listen. <laughs> That's the guy that made the food. Right? This is the man who is responsible for the technology and we won't let him talk. Uh, I was telling Jason on the side, how many people know about the Barrington Declaration? Okay, Barrington Declaration is a declaration that was signed by a group of physicians, like uh, right now signed by over 550,000 uh, scientists and physicians. CNN two weeks ago called them a fringe group of physicians. The original uh, people that signed it, that came up with the idea, one is a professor of epidemiology out of Stanford, Dr. Bhattacharya has been around and uh, is well known. That's Ivy League school. The other one's a professor of medicine from Harvard. The other one's a professor of medicine from uh, Oxford in England. These three started the declaration, and they're supposed to be French physicians. I don't know who's a scientist. The man who hasn't seen a patient in 35, 40 years is our prime scientist. That's another lesson I think we learned from this, that uh, bureaucrats, and I'm not trying to get into politics, but they should not be in positions of managing public health or anything else for that matter, really, for 30 or 40 years. I mean, why are they in our law? If this is public service, thank you for your service. Go get something else. <laughs> you know? If it is not public service, then uh, you have no business being here. And really, it's not public service. Because the most amazing thing, some of our um, uh, national level uh, professionals who are in charge of our health and make policies should have done from the beginning was to come to the television and say, we don't know. But don't worry, we'll hang in there together, we'll do the work, we'll watch and ask all the right questions, and we'll come up with something. I think people will appreciate that honesty instead of constantly saying things and then changing them, and you know who, which people I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah. These are the people that head various organizations, from CDC to anything else that makes policies that gets all the way down to our local health departments. And then you have commissioners of small counties fighting over whether they can actually rule or school board people for children to be without a mask. Because the first thing they're gonna tell them is, if you go against the CDC, you'll be personally liable. And all it takes is for one parent to come and say, you killed my son. That's it. 
So another thing we learned is we need less lawyers in the Congress and in the Senate. Amen. And if there's any lawyers here, I apologize. But when you write uh, when you write something like uh, Obamacare, which is thousands and thousands of pages, and you say uh, you got to pass this thing before you can find out what's in it, yeah. and you go ahead and pass it, and then you vote not to get it for yourself. You know who you're dealing with right then, because the politicians, our Congress and the Senate, actually voted not to get the Obamacare, but it was great for you guys. That means it wasn't really great. <laughs> I think they should get the care we give to our veterans. That's the care they should get. And we should get the care that they get and give it to the veterans. <laughs> because because the veterans actually stood in front of bullets and guns and fought for our country. My son is a, a Marine. You know, these people have had been to places sometimes they can't even talk about. Right? Those folks that are making these kind of rules and regulations, regardless of the party, by the way, they just talk. That's right. I think this is the biggest discovery, maybe next to the last that I'm about to share. The biggest discovery about this that we should really know the Word of God as best we can learn it. Because the enemy will always use your fears to get a foothold into your life. Amen. And they use fear to get a foothold in our lives. And here's the story about fear. It's just like football. If you see a football team running the ball and they can keep scoring, they're not going to change the running game until the coach from the other team learns how to stop the run. When you go at halftime and you say, we've got to stop the run, and you actually get to stop it, you tell your quarterback to throw the ball. Am I making sense? Nobody knows enough football? <laughs> These people just learn how to use fear to get us to uh, accept submission. And this is literally what this game is about right now. It's a game of submission. And they've learned it really well. And unless we do something to show them we can run the ball a different way, they're going to come up with this submission game forever. Because they have gained powers, powers that be have gained powers that they would have never imagined they could have. You know, a governor without any medical background making regulations about what you can do with your body. It's an emergency situation. Emergency what? Pfizer is getting an emergency approval to inoculate babies. Yeah. Emergency of what? How many babies have died from this disease? That's a question somebody needs to ask. No, not babies. Not babies. Yeah. <laughs> the babies are, are the least touched by this, and children are even a very low likelihood. Right now we've had thousands of children that have been infected. Many of them have been in hospitals, but the death rate is still 0.0000 something percent. Children have a lot higher likelihood of supposedly dying from the flu. Where's the flu? Who got COVID and died? So bottom line is, uh, these, uh, these lessons, I think that probably the most important lesson, again, being the last one, that this is a gaming submission. We should be aware of what we're dealing with. I uh, ran away from a country uh, where you would see something in the news, 
at 6 o'clock. You had witnessed at 3 o'clock in the streets on your own. But at 6, they will tell you what you really saw. And it's scary, because if you repeated what you saw in the street, you'd go to jail. Okay? Australia, I heard, they're giving a six-month prison right now to physicians who write for ivermectin. The medical board of Minnesota has started collecting names of physicians who write for ivermectin. The chill effect from that, next time you complain about a physician not writing for these things, just be mindful that when a state board starts collecting your name, that's serious stuff. Serious stuff. And you never know when that can come around here. Uh, so I think the lesson really for us is to turn down the rhetoric, be, um, be more loving and kind towards the people that are not necessarily walking this walk the way we are, and uh, pay attention to the fact that uh, we could still turn this thing around and change this thing if we stick together, if we have one voice. Uh, I know Jason has always done uh, amazing things just trying to get people together here uh, since I've known him uh, from our years together at the same church. Um, we have people out there that are willing to do what needs to be done in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. It takes courage. doesn't matter what the field is. We, we should always applaud that and be uh, supporters of it. And I think in this situation, the thing we learn from this disease is that us getting together and sticking together and knowing what we are actually facing is not, the enemy is not the virus. The enemy is uh, fear. Uh, hopefully we'll do a better job if we are stuck with a situation like this down the road again. So I appreciate your time, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to hear come talk, and I'll be available for any questions, I guess, for as long as Jason says I have time. Yeah, can we yeah, okay, Thank you. Yes, yes, sir. How do you feel, or what do you think, with regard to the bad side effects from the vaccine? Adverse so, reaction. Uh, good, great question. So the question is, what are the things we're seeing about the bad side effects from the vaccines? Uh, again, these are really not vaccines in traditional sense. Right. They're injectable therapeutics. The mRNA ones are a little bit different from Johnson & Johnson, and those are the three right now. That, you know, there's a, another one on the works here. Uh, these are the ones that we're dealing with here in the U.S. The rest of the world has had a mixture of uh, experience with various formats. Johnson & Johnson model is a little bit older model of making vaccines. It's closer to a vaccine, a traditional vaccine. Uh, with that said, is uh, science, especially science and medicine, is very much like um, um, waiting for an autopsy when somebody dies and the death is not observed. It's a state law, federal law pretty much. Anybody other than George Epstein, anybody that dies without being, they get a proper autopsy and everybody is going to start investigating to see what's going on and how they die. Right. So uh, when, you, when, you, when you get the autopsy done, sometimes you find information that you otherwise would not have been available to you and you get to know what might have actually killed the person. Uh, with that said, with diseases, it's very much the same with vaccines, with meds. You need to really wait for the results to come in. And we don't just have enough information. So we have preliminary things, and then we have a lot of uh, nonsensical information that is going around in social media. The primary information is this. They are not very effective, obviously. You don't have to be a scientist to figure that out. People with shots. We have lost one person that we know, and that person has been fully vaccinated. So go figure, right? So uh, the question you're asking is, what are the side effects of it? Well, the side effects become clear when something is openly being studied and evaluated. This thing is not being openly evaluated and studied. 
So when confirmation, when uh, let me put it this way, if a, if a drug would have come out five, six years ago, and it would have had this many complaints about it on the government's website, whereas it would have been taken out of the market immediately. Right. But this thing is still out there, obviously. You know, just the Israeli findings about uh, myocarditis, which is an infl inflammatory condition of the heart, in younger people, should be sufficient to start asking questions, should be stopped, at least in younger people, to inoculate them. But we're not. We're pushing for all young people to get the vaccine, and now Pfizer wants to give it to babies. Right. So the jury is out as to the true side effects of the uh, disease, of the vaccine. Um, from preliminary studies, we have a lot of information, a lot. Uh, there may be uh, lots of issues with blood clot formation, especially with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, you have to be fair. There is also issues with the disease. When you get the COVID, you can also get some problems, with, especially if you're untreated. None of my patients have any long-term issues right now. Thank God. We have treated them, and we don't have any kidney issues, any liver dysfunctions, any continued lung problems. Everybody is really back to almost their baseline. But we are seeing a lot of this long-term effects on lungs. We're seeing uh, from the disease. So I don't want to make it sound like that. Uh, it's just people that are getting the vaccine, but people that are getting the vaccine are having some unusual things. We are seeing right now young people, one young person in our office, uh, 21, and he can't remember the names of his siblings. Is it related to the vaccine or he's just uh, getting dementia at 21? So you start out to ask, there's an MIT professor who just uh, basically, with her research, she believes uh, this is not supported by science yet, but she's raising the question, which should be enough for us to pause. She's saying that she believes, based on the way Parkinson's disease usually starts showing its effects, which is um, a long discussion medically, so I won't get into it, that she believes that the vaccines are creating the same situation in younger people, and she believes that we might start seeing 25, 26-year-olds with neurodegenerative diseases two, three years after their vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Well, we don't have enough science because the thing hasn't been out more than two years yet. So the jury's out on a lot of these things, but we have enough warning signs, in my opinion, that we should do what the Barrington Declaration people have announced. We should lay off children and younger people. We should make this be a choice between physicians and their uh, you know, patients. The way we have made decisions like this in the past. And then let those people decide if for their particular situation, it's reasonable to get the vaccine or not, or the shots. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not giving you a direct answer, but there is really no direct answer. We, the jury's out. Uh, we'll know a lot about it in 10 years, but then it's too late. <laughs> I think when we have this many problems, we should wait, we should pause. I agree. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Um, one of my coworkers, two of her family members was, were in the hospital. Um, one had it right at the beginning, and they were both put on remdesivir. I can't say that right. Um, and they're now having issues long term after they've gotten better. Took them a while to get better. Have you seen anything um, reverse adverse effects from someone getting mad in the hospital and getting over? So the question is: Is there um, any adverse effects long term from remdesivir? Um, medications I explain to my patients are like pet snakes. Every time I say this, somebody raises their hand and goes, what's wrong with pet snakes? I got two. So if you got a pet snake, I apologize. But they don't make good pets. You can't cuddle up with a snake. I mean, if you do, there's, come and see me. We'll talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, they don't 
family of good pets. They're not furry animals. They are not, uh, you know, responsive emotionally like a dog would be, etc., etc. So when you get a pet snake, the question is not if it's going to bite you. The question is when. That's how medications are. All medicines, including all those things that are over the counter that you all go buy when you have a cold, you use, I don't know, uh, NyQuil, NyQuil, they all have side effects. All of them. There is no roses without thorns in our feet. The way my brain works is when I'm giving a medicine to you, if the, out, the, the symptoms of the disease, the outcome of the disease, uh, is considerably worse than the side effects of the medicine, you bet I'm going to throw that medicine at you. If not, I'm not going to. Right? So remdesivir, just like any other, and first of all, the worst thing about remdesivir is it's ineffective. It's not, a, and the manufacturer agrees that it isn't effective. So things can get uh, lost in the fog a little bit. When a patient has COVID, bilateral pneumonia, they're in the hospital, and on a ventilator, and they got remdesivir, the question you're asking is, is the remdesivir killing them, their lungs, or is it the COVID and the ventilator? We don't know. I think, yeah, I think that the treatment altogether is wrong. So, I mean, I don't know. They say the definition of insanity is when you keep doing something the same way and you expect to get different results. We've been treating people in this manner and we keep losing them and we keep treating them the same way. So obviously, maybe this is again in science, months ago would have been time to pause and say, this is not working, let's go to plan B. But that plan B is just not coming around fast enough, unfortunately. I hope that helps. Anybody else? So great question. The question is, uh, are the hospitalists or hospital staff, hot doctors in, in particular, are getting commissions for uh, prescribing or giving people remdesivir or putting people on ventilator? It's against the law. No physician can benefit from giving a medicine to anyone. I know this is a question a lot of patients ask when they come to my practice. You know who put that in effect? Doctors. Doctors got together and they decided they should never benefit from meds. So I can't own a pharmacy. For a good reason. I shouldn't. Because even if you're really pure, at some point in your life you might get affected and start thinking, hey, let me write this prescription because they're going to go pick it up from my pharmacy. Now, state to state, they have regulations that are variable, so don't quote me on that and don't go Google it. Uh, there are states that allow physicians to have 10% of a pharmacy, etc., etc., but uh, we can't actively, like you see, doctors don't have pharmacies inside their practice. They don't sell drugs to people, right? Uh, so dermatologists aside, because they give creams and all manner of things to make people prettier all the time. Uh, so physicians cannot benefit from giving medicine, particularly when they work for an institution. So it's against the law. So those are all rumors. Uh, most physicians, this is, this is one of the worst things that has happened during this pandemic. One of the worst things that has happened, the most trusted professionals in our country, which have always been doctors and nurses, have been, their reputations have been ruined because of what's happened, unfortunately. Because they have stayed quiet, and they're not actively trying to stand up for their patients. They should. They should be patient advocates. We should uh, walk over coal to defend our patients, but we're not as a group. So people are wondering now if we're benefiting from this. It's illegal. You can't. So I hope that answers. You don't benefit from how many people you put on 
um, ventilators or how many people you put on a particular medicine because it's against the law, federally. All right? Yes. Oh, yes. Go ahead. I just made an observation if you want to make an observation as a result, that's fine. Uh, I don't know how to correct the dynamics of this thing, but you know, I look at the TV screen and they got this drug on there they advertise, and then after they get through with the advertising, they got a list of side effects a mile long. And it scares me to death reading the side effects. Yes, sir. But yet, here they come up with this drug like bam, presto, and you've got to take it and down your throat with this thing, whether you like it or not, and, and suddenly, I'm saying, wait a cotton pick a minute. I can sue over everything else over here. I mean, when a drug comes out two years later, you start seeing the list of law firms you call yes, to sue yes. the, the side effects. And, and we got to, I don't know how to correct this problem in this country, but there's, there's a trust issue that's in all, automatically built in with yes, me. Sir. And, uh, and then when I start reading in, in Alaska, that five young military types in the 30s suddenly died from crazy stuff after taking this shot. Yes. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out there's some kind of correlation there. So the the, uh, the comment is that uh, normally when you watch uh, uh, television advertising for a drug, um, somebody comes on there and rapidly says a series of side effects that you can get from it, including sudden death sometimes. Because it could be sudden death, but ask your doctor if it's okay for you. <laughs> <laughs> is sudden death okay for me, doc? <laughs> yeah, for you, it's good. <laughs> No, it's something that's never okay. But the, the, so the question is, well, how come we don't see that list of uh, horrible things for uh, the vaccines? Is because these have emergency approval. That's what I was talking about. One of the lessons is when we give emergency powers to people, we should realize what is the definition of an emergency. If we're in war, where's the war? You know, if millions of people are dying, where are those millions of people? I want to see their graves, right? And you know, at the beginning, we counted almost everyone who came to the hospital. You were asking whether doctors will benefit from. Hospitals benefit from having a diagnosis of COVID on the list. So they, so they actually get paid more because hospitals' payments are based on severity of the diagnosis. And the more diagnoses you have, the better you get paid. So that, But that's not physicians. Physicians don't get any extra on their pockets for that. So the comment you're making is, how come we don't that see that list? Is because we have given it an emergency approval. When something is emergently approved, it's like um, bulletproof. You can't even sue these people for side effects anymore. Good luck. But it's not FDA approved yet. Well, only because it's emergency. Well, the FDA approval came out for the for emergency. Well, yeah. the, the FDA approval is for emergencies because the right. clinical studies are not going to be done until 2023. Right. Yeah. yeah, the earliest ones. So. Yes. One question I had for you, and, and I might have misinterpreted what the young lady back there was asking you, but I think we were more concerned about the hospitals dictating certain policies to the doctors and nurses that are working in that hospital mm -hmm. and telling them what procedures they have to adhere to. And the hospitals, we know, do make a profit from the diagnosis and other yes. things that follow from that. Yes. Yes. So the, the comment is that even though uh, what I was saying earlier is that the Physicians are not getting a kickback for prescribing these. Right. Our hospitals actually getting kickbacks for uh, doing a particular medicine. Uh, I'm not, only the only people that are privy to that are people that sit in um, decision-making process at a hospital that right. decides which drugs are the drugs that are being chosen for that hospital for a treatment because everything has got six different versions. This particular one is a is a novel drug. Uh, imagine if you were I don't know who had soup tonight. Anybody ate soup? Okay, good. Did you have crackers with your soup? 
Eddie, you had one cracker. Imagine, imagine Eddie and I had a cracker-making business, and the government of the United States said, anybody who wants to eat soup must eat Eddie's crackers. Yes. What kind of business would that be? I'm glad I'm your partner, buddy. <laughs> That'd be some business. That's what Pfizer has. They have a drug, and the government says you must get it, right? So uh, is there profit in that? Yeah, there's a lot of profit in that. Uh, the, the question really is not whether the hospitals are getting kicked back. That's the question is how much, how many politicians does that buy? Yeah. That's really what we need to be asking. Right. Uh, all these questions are great. Your enemies are not doctors and nurses. That's not who your enemy is. All right. Again, 30 years running, we have been the most trusted professionals in this country. You know who we trust the least in every one of those polls. If there is any other in, in the audience that is not like I apologize ahead of time. It's used car salesmen, then below them is lawyers, and then at the bottom is politicians. And those guys tell us how to do our business ethically. That's pretty amazing, right? Okay, how did we get here? We sat and watched. And we weren't involved in the process. That's how we got here. Amen. So it's time for Americans to open their eyes and actually see what's going on around them. Just because the Supreme Court has a ruling, that doesn't make it a law. Most Americans think the Supreme Court passes something that now becomes a law of the land. No, the, the legislature has to go out there and actually be brave enough to decide, hey, this should be changed. But we act like, oh, the Supreme Court have said this. We can't do that anymore. You know. And again, most of our country doesn't even know that's the way it doesn't work. How long do emergency powers last? <laughs> How many years does a governor get to come up with all sorts of edicts just because he has an emergency control over things, right? How long, how long does an emergency last? What's the definition of an emergency? <laughs> These are the questions we should ask, and I think it's best for us not to attack one another, including the unmasked and the masked. Don't right. fight and argue amongst yourselves. That's what they want you to do. That would make it a lot easier on them if you were talking about northern states, southern states, and that states, and that whatever. That's not the conversation. The conversation is about how bad the doctors are getting this. The doctors are dealing with a situation that is unfortunate. Their livelihood. How many of you were threatened with losing your jobs if you don't get a vaccine? Okay. I won't put you on the spot. Most people chose to get the vaccine because they don't want to lose their jobs. I quit my job at the hospital. Faced with that situation, I was the... Uh, director or medical uh, supervisor for pulmonary rehab at our local hospital, and uh, I quit. It's not about it's not about physicians and nurses. It's not about profits and money. He should follow the money. That's a good thing. But it is more about uh, the policies that are out there that puts people, especially some young people, you know, a brand new graduate out of nursing school has lived all their life to become a nurse. They come out and they're given an option to do certain things or go, go sell uh, something at a store. And those are not easy decisions to make. So I think we should be mindful of those things and fix the problem where, it's, where the problem is. The system is broken, but it's not broken at the level of physicians, I promise you. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about the... Uh, challenges you've had in treating people the way you want to and how you've overcome those challenges? So uh, everybody heard the question, the challenges we have treating people the way we want to, right? The only challenge is here, in your head. You know, I haven't had, uh, I've had 
phone calls that I've made to pharmacies trying to get a particular medication, and pharmacist says, you can't. And I acted stupid, and I said, what do you mean you can't? I just did. And they go, well, no, no, you can't. I said, well, yeah, I just gave you an order for that medicine. And they go, but yeah, you can't. And I knew where they were going. I said, I I'm confused. I just gave you an order. I did. They go, no, I'm trying to tell you, you can't use that medicine for this condition. I said, Allah, since when you become a doctor? <laughs> right? And then they go on to say, well, yeah, our board, pharmacy board of the state of North Carolina has regulations. They limit the number of hydroxychloroquines I can give to my patients to 14 days. So I can only give 14 days supply of hydroxychloroquine when somebody is diagnosed with COVID. That regulation is because the pharmacy board of the state is putting that pressure on the pharmacists. Right? These are challenges. If a pharmacist breaks that, they can lose their license. So challenges are uh, mostly internal because you have to get over your fears of, hey, I'm going to do what I think is right for my patients, and if I lose my job, uh, hopefully one of my really rich patients will get me a job. <laughs> I can pay my mortgage. <laughs> God's got to take care of us. This is not about money. This is about doing the right thing. I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, she's first. Hold on just a second. She's at her arm. Just, just a quick question about, you know, we hear a lot about, oh, we don't know how long natural immunity lasts, and that people who have already had COVID should still get the vaccine. Curious in your practice with the COVID patients you've dealt with, how many have you seen be reinfected? So, great question. The question is, uh, what, what is uh, natural immunity all about? Should people with natural immunity get the vaccine? And then how many people who've had COVID in the past have been reinfected? In my practice, we've had one reinfection documented. One. And it was so mild, I was talking to the man who was sick at the same time I was sick back in December of 2020. And with his second infection, I was talking to him. He was very sick on the first one. I didn't know about ivermectin and half of the other medicines at the time. Um, and uh, he was putting in a generator his mother-in-law's in the middle of the ice. I said, you have COVID? He goes, yeah, this one is not half as bad as the other one. <laughs> not even close to it. So the second infections are considerably milder, at least the one we have seen. There is uh, really not that many, many documented, genetically proved reinfections, but it can happen, apparently. Um, and we don't know the mechanism. I don't know the mechanism. I don't think anybody does the mechanism yet. As to the natural immunity, I mean, I don't know. That's the question, like, um, is the mountain that God made better looking or the hill that you piled up with a bunch of dirt in your backyard? <laughs> yeah. You know, the mountains that God makes are God's work. Natural immunity is God's work. It's always better. Uh, that's not a new thing, by the way. We've known that forever in science. Uh, now they're pushing and saying everybody with natural immunity should at least get one shot. Because their immunity gets better, and that is a no from my perspective. I agree. So, and again, that could change because science does change. But right now, from what I'm seeing, people who had the disease and got the shot are doing the worst with side effects. Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. From, from my observation, I guess, seems like the whole focus has been on driving everyone towards the vaccine versus putting attention towards finding a cure over here more so. And, and I think we've lost a lot of valuable ground fighting that fight that war amongst themselves. And, and I have a real problem with the, with the medical profession when they let nurses and doctors practice in a COVID world for a year and a half, and all of a sudden, you've got to get a shot or you're going to lose your job. Wait a minute. You just, you've been here for the last year and a half working under, this, under these same conditions, and now all of a sudden, you've got to get a shot. 
This is insanity at its best, in my, in my opinion. So yeah, so uh, their uh, gentleman's opinion is that uh, you know the pushing physicians and doctors to get a shot while they've been working with this thing for nurses, you know, is a bad thing. And I, you know, I obviously I quit my job because of that, so I agree. You know, I mean that wasn't my main job. My job, I own my own practice. Uh, thank God, I don't have to be working for anybody. But uh, the job that I had on the side, it was a good job by all stretches of imagination. But I, you know, I believe we should put our not where our money is, or how is it said, or I'm a foreigner. So, <laughs> you should practice what you preach, you know. And I, I quit because I thought it was uh, not the right thing to do. And then you made another comment about um, uh, the immunity. Uh, same, same answer, you know. Again, the immunity is the immunity that you have, whether you got it when you were working in the hospital with patients or you got it uh, walking around the street. That immunity, we, we, me we measure antibodies in our practice. Uh, we also are signing up to do what is called a T-cell uh, immunity measurement. So you can actually look at a person's uh, kind of memory of the disease and see if they still have that. Because the antibodies are like your soldiers out there, which can fight a disease. And they eventually reduce the numbers, whether you've had a natural immunity or got a shot. Uh, because we've been testing it, again, we were asking questions. We've been testing people serially, and we're finding people that get the shot. We, I knew the vaccines are gonna, the shots are gonna stop working way in advance of anybody else figuring out because I was doing uh, serial numbers on people and I was noticing their antibodies were dropping like crazy. So we knew that the Pfizer wasn't gonna work within five months, and it stopped working after five months. That's where of course the boosters coming, right? So the natural immunity actually lasts longer. We have people in our office that got it last year in December. This is a year and a change out. And they still have antibodies, and well, now we're going to be able to sell, check for cell-mediated immunity, which is a little bit more involved process that looks at memory, and I think that's going to give us a little bit more information in this fight because just between us, I don't think this is going to be the last plague we're going to see. Nope. Nope. Because again, they, they, they have a, a, a playbook, and the playbook has worked, so there's going to be more things coming out. Uh, You're allowed to go. I just want to give you, I mean, give you a chance to. Take a break. So if, you're, if, you're done, if, if you want to answer another question, that's fine. Yes. Otherwise, I just, I'll wrap. We'll take the last question. Yes, yes. Can, you, can you touch on the monoclonal antibodies? So the question is about monoclonal antibodies. Um, monoclonal antibodies came out early, and they, um, I think uh, President Trump is one of the first people that got it. It was not approved at the time. It has been approved since. I asked my patients, what's their objection to the vaccine? If a person tells me, I don't trust this stuff, you know, it's new, I don't want to put it in my body. I want to say, how do you trust the monoclonal antibody? If you do, go get it. It's an option, it's out there. We have not been pushing people to go get it, we treat people differently. If the person says to me, I'm not taking the vaccine because I'm a Christian, and in research and development of all three of these vaccines, they used aborted baby cell lines from the past, to develop the vaccine, and that's against my faith. I'm gonna say, well, it should be against your faith to get the monoclonal antibody too, because it has used the same research. So it's really up to the person. We are not in our practice telling people what to do uh, to make decision for them. We just give them the information. And a lot of Christians, when they hear that, they go, oh shoot, well, I don't want that then. So they do the treatments we have available. But if they want to go get it, we've had one patient self-proclaimed Christian who went and got it, and they were okay with it, and that's all right with me. I mean. These are things you deal with with God on your own, right? <laughs> so I hope that helps.
So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Dr. Kowastani was great, um, has a great personality and uh, was very funny as well. So uh, it was a very engaging talk and uh, the folks here had a great time with it. Um, please share that with others. Um, uh, he's been gracious enough to allow us to record it and, and share that. So um, uh, anything you can do to, to get that message out there, I just think hopefully will be encouraging to people and also hopefully other doctors, you know, within our state and, and medical um, personnel. Um, one thing that I thought was just so impactful that I shared with our group after he finished um, and that I want to share with all of you is just how important it is and how powerful it is to live out your freedom. Um, you know, going to meetings and uh, going on Facebook and social media and speaking out and, and speaking the truth is important and we need to do that and we'll continue to do that. But the most important thing you can do is to live the truth. Uh, if you know that masks don't work, then don't wear masks. If you believe that the vaccine is dangerous, then don't get a vaccine. Um, you know, if if your you know workplace or you know wherever it is that you're at is putting you in a position to do something that is against your bodily autonomy or or just the freedoms that you believe that we enjoy, um, then you have every right to take a stand for that. And that stand is infectious and it is powerful. So I just want to encourage all of you to, you know, live out the truth that you believe, um, share that truth with others um, and encourage others to do the same. Um, we can do this, but we've got to stick together um, and we've got to be brave, you know. So um, as the Bible tells us, you know, be strong and courageous um, and know that the Lord is always with us. So that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the First and Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and give it a five-star review. That will help ensure other freedom-loving North Carolinians find it as well. Um, the show can be found on Apple, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you go for podcasts. Finally, if you have additional feedback or show topic ideas, you can email me directly at firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. That's firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. And until next time, be first in freedom. <laughs>